0: Greetings, in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, How to Study the Bible, or How to Go to the Word of God in Fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ to let Him teach you the Word of God so that you can receive truth from the Word of God. Uh, these last several lessons, uh, we've been speaking about the principles, uh, biblical principles, the infallible Invaluable biblical principles for studying the Word of God so that you will have truth and not a lie. You violate any of these principles, you cannot rely on what you've come up with or what you think you've found in the Bible. You can't, can't do it. And so this is video number 19, uh, and lesson number 18 in this series. And, uh, this is principle number seven. Principle number seven. And this is, uh, this is one that is very specifically stated in the scripture. Uh, this principle number seven is by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall ever word be established. This is very, very, very critical. Uh, and I'm going to repeat some of this as I get into reading, but right now I'm just going to say this up front. Any doctrine that is based upon a single scripture, a single scripture, is false doctrine. If God only ever referred to a subject one time and he never referred to it directly or indirectly at least more than once, two or three times at least, then your understanding of what he's saying is not correct. And there are many doctrines Many doctrines that people have that have been based on a single scripture. And this is not of the, this is not of God. So let's get into it. The principle is this. No scripture can be used independently of all other scriptures to establish a doctrine that is not in harmony with the rest of the Bible. No scripture. The Lord always establishes his truth by more than one statement of it. He might state it in different ways, but the different ways he states it does not, none of them contradict the other. And so when taken together as a whole, you have one statement of truth, one statement of faith. Any doctrine that cannot be established by more than one verse is in error. This is true. No matter how much sense it makes to the natural mind, it is also true no matter how long we have been practicing it as religious tradition. Let me just read you a few verses here. Uh, Matthew eighteen, sixteen says, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established John eight, seventeen and eighteen. It is also is it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father sent me; that sent me beareth witness of me. Uh, Second Corinthians thirteen one. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall ever word be established. And then in First John chapter five verse seven. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Logos, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Choosing to use biblical terms and refraining from using terms invented by tradition and theologians helps eliminate much confusion about what our faith involves. Let me say that again. This is really critical here. Choosing to use biblical terms and refraining from using terms invented by tradition and theologians helps eliminate much confusion about all that our faith involves. We need to use biblical terminology. non Biblical terminology, no matter how much it makes sense to us, always produces confusion. Always. Always. Again, choosing to use biblical terms and refraining from using terms invented by religion and theologians helps eliminate much confusion about all that our faith involves. Biblical terms that apply to all that we are called to believe, be, do, and teach can actually be found in the Bible. Traditional theological terminology cannot. This is, of course, a very difficult subject. For instance, the Godhead using any terminology that presupposes that an individual on a deserted island with nothing but a Bible and God's presence cannot come to a revelation knowledge of understanding of God, who and what he is, and how to be saved. I mean, that didn't make sense. I <laughs> mean, using any terminology that presupposes We should not, must not, okay, that's what I was trying to say here. We must not use any terminology that presupposes that would prevent a person, an individual on a deserted island with nothing but a Bible and the presence of God. Would he come up with that terminology himself? If I didn't have have books written on the subject and I only had the Bible and God, would I come up with that terminology from the Bible? If I wouldn't, then it's this terminology I shouldn't be using. It's terminology I shouldn't be used using. So therefore, I was asked recently, uh, "What was the method you used to reach the people of the predominant religion in this area where you started? You and your wife started the church." Well, simply this, the Lord said to me to tell them, don't believe anything that any man says, including me, if they can't show it to you in the Bible. So they went and asked their priest, where is this in the Bible? And he couldn't show them. In fact, one priest actually said to them, well, uh, you understand that we give the same credence to the writings of the apostolic fathers, which were not the apostles. Uh, in the 2nd and 3rd century equal credence to the Bible well of course they do they have to because if you can't find your doctrine in the Bible you kind of need to find it someplace don't you and I'm tra- not trying to be unkind here we're talking about the Bible we're not talking about any particular brand of uh, of religion or Christianity we're not talking about anybody's specific doc- we're talking about the Bible for instance Where's the word Trinity in the Bible? It's not in there. If that word was so accurately descriptive, wouldn't it be found somewhere in Holy Ghost inspired writing? How about the, we know the phrase God the Father is in the Bible numerous times. What about the phrase God the Son? The Son of God's in there, of course, but where's the phrase God the Son? Where? Where is that in there? It's not in there. We know the phrase Holy Ghost is in the Bible and we know that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God but where is the phrase God or the terminology God the Holy Ghost? Where is it at? Where is it? I'll go a little bit farther with you. King James the king of England in the late 1500s, early 1600s. He was the king of England and the state church of England was the Anglican church. Okay. He decided that he he wanted the Bible written in the language of the common man and he instructed the uh, scholars of the Anglican Church To translate the Bible And that translation came to be Known as the King James Version Now He instructed them To translate the Bible From those original languages Into the language of the common man So that uh Anybody who can read could read the Bible and know what it says for themselves. Ah, uh, But there's a problem because the Anglican church at that time baptized infants and they baptized by sprinkling. And so the scholars, among other situations, this is probably the most glaring one, had to go to King James and get the permission to not translate the greek word baptizo because if they had translated it as he instructed it would have contradicted their doctrine so we use the word baptize and they they did not baptize they did not translate the greek word baptizo they they transliterated it or specifically we could say they anglicized it they took the greek word letters and transliterated them into the english equivalent letters and then they brought that word into in an english form into the english and translated it in the bible as that so that's where we get the word baptism and the word baptize but the problem is, the reason they did that, of course, uh, was because the common man did not know what the Greek word "baptizo" meant, which means plunge, dip, or immerse. And so, therefore, the the uh, the Anglican Church could define the word "baptize" any way they wanted to, which they they defined it as sprinkling. They defined it as sprinkling. Now, I don't know for a fact that they forbid the practice of immersion, but I'm sure they did not immerse infants on request. There may be some historical record of that someplace, but I've never seen it. not saying it's not there, but the bottom line is by not translating the Greek word that let them and bringing it into the English language that let them define the word their way according to their doctrine rather than whatever because if they had translated it one verse would be repent and be immersed every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins now we can't always reject all terminology uh, that is non-biblical, but we have to do our best to demonstrate that that terminology is defined biblically. Is defined biblically. Now, how in the world they equated sprinkling with the verses that talked about baptism being a burial I don't know. Maybe they just ignored it. Maybe they just said, well, it's false figurative. It's only, and as some will say today, it's only an outward sign. It's it's not even, nothing actually happens. It's just a an outward sign you do to prove you're saved. Really? Okay. But the problem comes back to this. Uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Where are the witnesses for your terminology? Non-biblical, theologically created, or terminology created by theologians to explain something that they've seen in the Bible. Uh, It's not 100% of the time negative, but much of the time it is. I think the safest thing to do is speak where the Bible speaks and be quiet where the Bible is quiet. And that means we use biblical terminology. Whether it is English or Greek, for us that speak English, English or Greek or Hebrew slash Aramaic. Uh, I don't speak Greek. I don't read Greek. I don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't but thank God, there are a lot of different uh, reference works that are written for those for people like me. And the good thing is, there's so many different ones that I don't have to take the word of any one of them. That's the key, see. Because even the scholars that you came up with the definitions of these words uh, in their particular reference work that they're writing. Sometimes their prejudice on things shines through. Their opinion shines through. So it's not a specifically scholastic definition. That definition also includes and is leaning toward their personal doctrine. So I have learned to take a preponderance of the evidence to look at at numbers of Greek references on that same subject and come up with that. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses works in a lot of different ways. I like Strong's. I I, I like the the way that Strong's defines things. Uh, But I like Thayer's. And I use uh, Wiese's and uh, Robertson's and Vincent's. And I could go on. And I, I, I will collect in my studying, just my personal studying, I will collect, I will cut and paste the definition from these and other sources uh, of what that word means. And as I'm reading through all of them, the Holy Ghost lets me see what he's trying to say by that preponderance of the evidence, by that mouth of two or three witnesses. And every once in a while, Vines is another one I use, every once in a while I'll read a definition that is, Not exactly the same as the majority of the rest. And if you know that guy's doctrine, you'll see that he kind of slid his doctrine into what was supposed to be a scholarly work, which therefore is his opinion. Because when you're speaking of the technical side of these Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic words, you're supposed to be defining them non-theologically in the sense of giving the meaning of the word. Why did the Holy Ghost choose this word? And what did that word mean in the context of that verse? And how is that word used in the other verses where the Holy Ghost used it? So you can take all of this context and bring all these witnesses together, and God will give you the truth that harmonizes them all. And that's very, very critical. It's very, very critical. So again, uh, how am I supposed to be baptized? I couldn't help myself. How am I supposed to be baptized as I'm concluding this lesson? Well, there is one verse, one, 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 single verse, one verse, one, just one, not two, not one and a half, one one verse that says be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There are, as I've said in a previous lesson, there are at least 50 verses that either directly state or indirectly indicate that baptism was done in the name of Jesus. Now, if there were two or three then I could understand people taking the position that that's the way to be baptized. That's the way to be baptized. If there was two or three, maybe they could take three and ignore 50 others. But when there's one single verse, one, one. I don't have two or three witnesses on baptism in Jesus' name. I have 50 witnesses. Hello? So, this is a key principle right here. Key principle. How many people are basing their salvation on one verse? One verse. You may say, I don't think that's all that important. Well, if it's not that important, not that big a deal, then just get baptized in Jesus' name. Oh, pretty important, isn't it? If you're holding on to that, why is it that so much of the church world, why is it that so much of the church world is so married to the exact words of Matthew 28, 19? Why? Could it be, and this statement is easily confirmed with a uh, uh, a a uh what am I trying to say? A uh an electronic concordance where you can do an electronic search. It's really easy confirmed. And here's how it's confirmed. <laughs> There's no other verse in the King James New Testament that has these words in the same verse Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is no other verse in the entire New Testament, even counting Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a part of the New Testament. There is no other verse anywhere in the New Testament that has these four words in the same verse, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Now, if you're going to use the unbiblical terminology trinity, then that verse becomes undebatable for you. It's not even an option for you, is it? You can't possibly let that verse go because it's the only one you got. It's the only one you got. And if you baptize in Jesus' name rather than Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, then you have to explain to people why Jesus' name satisfies Matthew 28, 19. And that's essentially impossible to do. It is not either or, friend. The apostles were commanded to go and teach what he commanded them. And they did it. And the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And what was the apostles' doctrine? Repent and be baptized, immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Now, in closing out this lesson, I do want to make one more point. A salvation doctrine must have the requisite two or three verses. Now, in order for that to be a doctrine, there is something called convictions. Convictions. I've referenced this at least once earlier in this series, but I want it to be understood. Uh, I have a friend, a great man of God. His dad was an alcoholic. His dad got saved. His dad became a preacher. His dad preached to his church that you cannot eat in any restaurant that serves alcohol. Why? Why? Because that's what the Lord told this man. You know your, your, your weakness toward alcohol. So God convicted this man to not eat food anywhere where alcohol was served in order to not put himself in a place of temptation. God convicted him to do that. I believe God spoke to that man to do that. But then he take, took it and made it a doctrine for the entire church. And there were people in that church that never even tasted alcohol in their life and eating in a restaurant where alcohol was served or sitting on an airplane with somebody drinking alcohol next to you wasn't going to tempt them at all. He took a conviction, well-intentioned, a sincere man, well-intentioned. He took that conviction that God gave him and made it a doctrine, even though he could not support that scripturally. And then the son got was saved, and he became a pastor, and he took that church from his dad. Well, now the son, who had never tasted alcohol in his life, he had to continue to preach that it was wrong to eat in a restaurant where alcohol was served because a legitimate conviction from the Holy Ghost was made a doctrine even though it could not pass the test. Uh, by the mouth of two or three witnesses so much of the bible is con- contains principles not applications why because the application of a principle in any culture if it was if the scripture uh did that it would be a monstrous book if it covered every culture do this don't do this in your culture but it would also become dated if it didn't do that So eternal principles are put in the book. There are very few applications of Scripture in biblical lifestyle in the Bible. And yet, the church I've fellowshiped with and been raised in, there are so many convictions, legitimate convictions preached as doctrines for everybody and that everybody's judged by. Everybody's judged by it. Everybody's judged by them, and they're not Bible. They're not biblical doctrines. Legitimate convictions that God, the Spirit of God gave to certain people about their own salvation. That's why Romans 14 tells us not to judge another man's servant, that if I have faith, I keep it to myself. In other words, if I have conviction about a certain thing. Paul talked about that. If you're able to eat meat offered to idols because it's just meat to you, keep it to yourself. Don't be a stumbling block to somebody else. But if you don't eat the meat because it was offered to idols, that's your faith. You don't have a right to judge somebody else. So again, this all comes back to the principle, and it applies to every area of truth. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. You cannot have a doctrine without two or three witnesses. I have a document written on that. If you're interested, you can contact uh, me through uh, my website, apostoliciron.com, and I will do my best to get that to you. In fact, I think that document's already posted on apostoliciron.com if you'd like to read through the biblical presentation of the difference between doctrines and convictions. God bless you. I pray that you've been blessed and benefited by this lesson. In Jesus' name.